Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Aaron McBride, Industrial Light and Magic Senior Art Director and Concept Artist. His work has spanned the prequels, the sequels, the spin-offs, Star Wars Insider covers, the introduction of Darth Maul's robotic legs, and so much more. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 77, Aaron McBride. Well, before diving into ILM and the incredible work that you've done over the past 20 years there, let's first talk about your inspirations. What made you even want to be an artist or get into film in this way? I grew up watching film and drawing all the time. And I loved film so much that I was never real confident as an artist, but I I always kind of liked the whole idea of telling stories and and storytelling through film. And so filmmaking takes a very large and uh, extremely talented assembly of people that I was like, okay, well, the only way I can kind of do that is just try and draw, (laughs) (laughs) kind of tell a story and, you know, do something visually. So, so I, I really just started trying to learn how to draw and and, uh, make artwork because it was the the most cost-effective way to try and tell stories. (laughs) Did you have any particular inspirations, artists that you looked up to? Because I mean, your your work, especially, I mean, I just went through all the the art of books and you can tell when it's one of your keyframes or one of your designs. And it's a very unique visual style that I would love to delve a little bit more into. Like a lot of us, people have different entry points, I think, into Star Wars. Right. I was three years old when I saw it in the movie theater and I don't remember it so much as the story. I remember it as a palette of colors. Oh, interesting. Like I remember the beginning is all yellow because of Tatooine. Mm-hmm. And then there's black and white parts, which are the Imperial parts. And I remember the, the canteen being dark and sort of a red hue. Mm-hmm. So I, I just sort of remember it as like this kind of color scripting palette. Wow. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, obviously like a lot of us, we were all inspired by Star Wars, but I saw when I was so young that I almost took it for reality. Mm-hmm. Like I assumed it was a real place that I wanted to visit and and go to. So it wasn't until I was older that I actually understood what filmmaking and storytelling was, the talent behind it, like right. the, the people actually making these films. And it was, um, it was actually Ridley Scott was a huge inspiration. When I was around 12, I think I sort of made the connection. Like I loved Blade Runner and I loved Alien and I loved that movie. Uh, he did Legend. Oh yeah. I But I didn't know it was all the same person. I think I put, I made the connection that it was the same person who had done all those, which meant that there was someone behind these things that I liked who was, who was making creative decisions. And that was why they all looked or felt a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when I started researching the people behind making the films that I loved. So yeah, I, I must have worn out my Blade Runner VHS and, <laughs> and and just trying to figure out how things and that's when that's when you start it's almost like forensic science where you you start researching how the things you love were made. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I when I was introduced to Star Wars, I I just took it as a real place mm-hmm. and I just wanted all the toys. And I <laughs> And I wanted to play with the toys and and sort of, you know, reenact those stories. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I was older that I, with the films of Ridley Scott, that I, I tried to figure out who who's behind this. Right. I love that you said Ridley Scott, especially in his filmography, is so varied. And each one 
like you're saying, is such a unique piece, but but it's all tied by just this weird singular viewpoint that makes them all just completely work. And I mean, of course, then you have Sid Mead on Blade Runner and just diving into that whole aspect, I'm sure, is very inspirational. <laughs> you got to ILM first as an intern production assistant. Talk a little bit about how you first got introduced to the team and, and how you started making your mark uh, as early as The Phantom Menace. I had started out of college, actually, I, I, I ended up, my first job out of college was, uh, I started working in um, telejournalism. I worked for MSNBC for a while. And then um, I met, but what I really wanted to do was, you know, make the leap and go out to California and, and work for Lucasfilm. Mm -hmm. And I, a couple of the producers that I worked with at MSNBC had connections to the animation some of the animation studios out in San Francisco. And some of the producers there were former ILM. There was a sort of a cross-feeding of talent between some of the local animation studios in San Francisco and Lucasfilm and ILM. So I made some connections through producers that I've met in New York. And then I moved out to San Francisco with sort of a, a little phone list of um, people to kind of cold call. <laughs> so one thing led to another and I, I ended up getting an internship at ILM. Hmm. And I worked there for a year as an intern and uh, David Nakabayashi, who's now the creative director of the ILM art department. Uh, he was, at the time, he was the art director uh, on Phantom Menace. Mm -hmm. He was the visual effects art director on Phantom Menace, which was, no one had ever worked on anything that large before. There were three visual effects supervisors right. and they were all these A-list guys, you know, John Knoll, Dennis Murin, Scott Squires. It was just, it, it was this behemoth. And so I, Knock was nice enough to throw me a couple storyboards uh, to work on. And they were storyboards for the end battle. A couple a couple of shots with Jar Jar being cornered by some of the battle droids. Uh -huh. And so it was just a few pickup storyboards for the effects team. And so I, I did those. And then he, he gave me a couple other uh, concepts assignments that I had to kind of fit in between my, you know, intern job. It's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just making copies and scanning artwork and things like that. Right. And it, it was just random stuff like, uh, how do the droid tanks break apart when they explode? Where are the stress fracture lines? That kind of stuff. Uh -huh. So it was, it was very much, it wasn't the broad strokes. It was very much like the nitty gritty of how to how, visually, how do things happen photorealistically? They're putting you through your paces, making sure you can keep up. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely, I mean, it was, it was definitely coming in your, I had some preconceived notions of the industry when I came in, mm -hmm. which was, oh yeah, you get all the time you need to make a beautiful picture. And it's very deadline conscious. And right. how can you, how can you hit the mark and fit within the aesthetic that the director or the production designer is trying to make? Right. Well, I mean, even then from Phantom Menace, then making the jump working as an actual concept artist on movies like AI and Minority Report, I'd be curious to hear about your initial thoughts. What did you learn about the actual industry and, and how did you kind of grow, at least through those Spielberg movies? I'd be very interested to hear how that then translates to working for George Lucas as well. It's funny, I worked on two or three Spielberg movies in a row after when I when I first made, uh, got bumped up as a uh, junior concept artist. The first, first show I worked on was AI. And I remember the first thing I learned that was imperative to everything we did. It, it was it was kind of like the ABCs of you know visual effects, concept art, and art direction, which is Nock or David Nakabayashi would always hammer it into us. Uh, scale, always pay attention to scale. 
because whenever scale doesn't work, it's a dead giveaway. And then, you know, so that was, that was lesson one, just, you know, make sure scale works. And uh, I was fortunate enough to work with the ILM model shop uh, with a, for a lot of those sequences, like the whole underwater theme park mm -hmm. uh, was the first thing I started on wow. doing architectural orthographic drawings of the theme park rides. And it was very much inspired by like Coney Island rides and things like that. And then from there, it sort of went into, for, for the first couple Spielberg films I worked on, it was very much about architecture and environments and building elevations and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, which was handy because uh, my dad is a builder. Uh, he built a lot of houses and office buildings. So I tend to, I tend more towards creatures and characters in a lot of the artwork I do, but it was helpful to, you know, to have grown up around someone who always had set up, you know, building elevations and, and house elevations and, and, you know, just blueprints lying around their house. Mm -hmm. I worked on, uh, worked on AI. And then from there, I went on to Minority Report and had to figure out a lot of the elevations and architecture of futuristic Washington, D.C. Uh -huh. And the those magnetic roadway systems was sort of the bulk of what I worked on. Yeah. And it, it was very much trying to figure out a, a lot of those, like a lot of those ideas have been fleshed out by, you know, uh, the initial concept artists. And then it turned into, a, I, I kind of became like a civil engineer where I had to figure out like, what's an, what's a comfortable accelerated curve for an exit ramp on one of these things right. before it looked like the car was just getting slingshotted off a roadway. So it was, it was very much trying to figure out how this roadway system fit into, into Washington, D.C. It was funny because Blade Runner came up in conversation a lot on that show in regards to how is it that that was futuristic but looked believable. And there were a couple of things that came into play. I remember on Minority Report, which was interesting, was there are historic building codes in a lot of like with a lot of cities that have historic buildings, uh, you can't interrupt the flow of those buildings too much. And sometimes in cities that have a lot of historic buildings, you can't build above a certain number of stories. It's like some, this, you know, if you put in a new building, it can't be taller than this. So it became a balancing act of, we need to keep all the historic looking architecture of Washington, DC, but also make it look like it was futuristic and give it this elevated roadway system, but not in such a way that it would, it had to, it still had to complement all the historic buildings that were there. Right. Like the idea was that they would like a, the city codes would not let them build a giant skyscraper right next to the Lincoln Memorial. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a balancing act of how do you make that live comfortably in the existing landscape of DC. Interesting. I, I mean, I guess that's a further question because you brought up the concept artists had already flushed it out a little bit and then you had to make it actually workable, especially for the, the later on computer generated effects and making those sequences actually come to life. Mm -hmm. I guess this would be a great time to differentiate the difference or the similarities between the Lucasfilm art department and the ILM art department and kind of how those are synergistic, but also how those might differ. And I, I'm curious if, if that's something that is is completely um, spelled out throughout the process, or if it's just um, depending on the project and the shot, it, it varies. It used to be, I think when I started, there was very, you know, there's very clear distinctions between visual development, pre-production, principal photography, and then post-production. And usually visual development would get to a certain stage, the film would get greenlit 
based on that. And then pre-production would start and the they would figure out all the big things stylistically. And then by the time that, you know, movies are on a schedule. So if certain things were not resolved by the end of that phase, then, you know, there's always some carryover. And a lot of what the ILM art department does is figure out how things work photorealistically. Mm-hmm. You basically need to be faithful to the aesthetic that the production designer and the pre-production art department have established and also be be very faithful to what the director and the production designer you know want to continue through the show Mm -hmm. so a lot of times now a lot of times what we do is we come in at different stages and a lot of times certain design elements are figured out you know all throughout production because of you know because we have the flexibility of you know cgi now a director can change their mind in post-production which you know happens quite a bit right so when i first started out it was very much this it was very much certain things were figured out in certain stages now it's much more fluid process i think and a lot of times we'll get you know um a creature or a design that the director likes 90 percent of it now just figure out the tails and the feet Mm -hmm. and then other times we'll get in post-production or during principal photography the director will say, you know, let's try some other blue sky ideas of this. Mm-hmm. Um, let's revisit this a little bit. So it's just a matter of listening to the production designer and the director and understanding like how much of it they want to explore. Um, while still, you have to stay faithful to the story that they're trying to tell. I wonder if that's a great way to segue into uh, some of the non-Star Wars work that's been especially iconic, even revisiting it most recently for me on Disney Plus, is the first two Pirates of the Caribbean movies and some of that early work you did for both the Skeleton Pirates as well as Davy Jones and his crew. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious just to hear a little bit about that process of kind of being put into that production and then kind of creating these creatures that are not only breaking the boundaries with how they're animated and of course Davy Jones winning the Academy Award but then also figuring out a way to make it stylistically possible and interesting for the screen. It was interesting because a lot of Pirates the first Pirates of the Caribbean was the first time my first gig as a a visual effects art director Mm -hmm. and the uh, Gorber, Gorber Verbinski at the time had made a comment about he did not want the pirates to look like beef jerky. <laughs> and I, you know, it was, it was funny because I had just taken a train trip across country and my wife had packed me some turkey jerky and some beef jerky, mm-hmm. but it was like the natural, like Trader Joe's stuff, you know, like it was uh-huh. like super natural stuff. And so it had the texture of like flesh and the striations of muscle and things like that. Right. So it was a, it was kind of one of those examples of, understanding what a director is asking for like I, when he said when he said beef jerky i assumed he meant like slim jim like the right. artificial looking like tube right. and uh and i was like oh but if it was like turkey jerky and it actually looked like dry desiccated flesh it might work you know right and so that's what i when i got back and i, I got thrown on to pirates for the first pirates for about two days working on i think it was like uh jeffrey rush's character and i just ran out to the grocery store and grabbed some of that supernatural I don't mean supernatural as in ghosts. I mean, like, you know, the real, like, they, <laughs> they, they just brought it in from drying it, you know, right. turkey jerky and beef jerky and photographed it and started grafting it onto um, Jeffrey Rush's headshot. Mm-hmm. And so 
it was, you know, Crash McCreary, who I had grown up with looking at his, looking at a lot of his concepts for Jurassic Park. And like, I was a huge fan of his when I was, when I was in high school, he had done a lot of the explorations for the Cursed Crew. Mm -hmm. So it was a matter of taking those and bringing them up to like, okay, what does this look like photorealistically? Well, if flesh is going to decay naturally, it's probably going to look something like beef jerky or turkey jerky. So a lot of times it's figuring out what something's going to look like photographically on screen. I mean, then moving to your work, especially Revenge of the Sith is really when I took notice of your name because of, of so many interesting things in that initial art of book. And then throughout that process, then of course you have the insider covers, you have old wounds. But I mean, but before that, with Revenge of the Sith, what was that process like for you having even more input into this world? And I have a few things even bookmarked from that original book that are just like still so crazy to me, like the ballet dancers still stick out to me. Um, and then there's there's one that's always just gotten me was it's Yoda in mud hiding himself and um, both of those I don't know why but I just uh, I love them both so much but I'd love to hear a little bit more of your process there Revenge of the Sith I so yeah so I came off of um, I came off of the first Pirates film and I went on to Revenge of the Sith so that was like my second gig as as like an art director and there were a lot of art directors on, or on that project um my myself alex yeager who um has been a, is a long time island veteran and then we were working with the design directors uh eric Tiemens and ryan church right and so we divvied up a lot of those sequences uh because there were just so many uh of these large sequences so i think one of the i think alex yeager handled uda pow with eric Tiemens and the opening space battle with ryan church and then ryan church and i did Kashyyyk, the Battle of Kashyyyk. Mm -hmm. And then I worked on the, which this was one of the biggest ones I worked on was the Mustafar sequence with mm -hmm. uh, Eric Tiemens, which was a really large practical miniature builds undertaking, which was very daunting right. being my, my second gig as a, as an art director. It was very daunting, but it was the model shop guys are just legends. Um, I got to work with um, Nick Dabo on that whole build and then the overall supervisor was brian grenand in the model shop mm -hmm. um but a lot of what i did i did uh, you know some pickup stuff on some creature character work uh, you know like the the mon calamari ballet dancers right which was kind of described to me as it was almost going to be like this zero gravity cirque du soleil mm -hmm. it, with you know little globules of water which i i thought was really cool and then it was, you know, figuring out, okay, what do the Mon Calamari look like? Uh, you know, because our only, our only introduction to them had been uh, Admiral Akbar at right. that point his, and his uh, crew. But the, the, yeah, the largest undertaking was, uh, for me, was the, was the Mustafar sequence. And uh, it, was, it was mostly figuring out, I think that the facility itself was digital. The landscape was the landscape had to be practical because at the time the best technique for doing lava was methicil mm -hmm. and methicil is like this food thickening agent that they put in, you know, donut icing and things like that. But the trick was, and, you know, again, this is another one of those things that the model shop guys, you know, something would sound daunting and then the model shop guys would always be like, Oh yeah, no, but it's, we did this on this movie or this on this movie. And this right. is the best technique. And so it was, uh, it was this, plexiglass there it was so we sculpted the landscape or the mall shop sculpted the landscape we figured out the general uh, topography 
And then the rivers of lava, including the waterfall, which is like this Hoover Dam of lava, they were all had a base of clear plexiglass underneath them. And you would run the methicil over that and you would uh, shine red tinted light up through the plexiglass. So you would get this torrential uh, river of lava. Mm -hmm. And there were all these really cool little tricks like lava has a crust on it. Like when you, when you look at photos of lava, if it slows for a second, it'll start to cool and get a crust on top. So those were cork shavings that they would sprinkle on the methicil. And mm. so you get this, with the underlighting, it would look like this black crust on top. But the only problem was you, you could only dump the methicil once. And by the, end of the, by the end of the river, the cork shavings would mix with the methicil, so it would get all muddy. So that batch was no good. You couldn't pump it back and run it another another time. So every take, you had to do another batch of methicil. Um, it was it was it was a really really great learning process. And, right. and also, you know, with the complexity of this set and this miniature, you know, the, uh, Lauren Peterson was working on a lot of the sculpting of the landscape with the rock and the foam and stuff. But then at the end of all that, it had to be cantilevered up on one side so that the methicil would run downhill. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when all was said and done, we, we'd look at it like, okay, this is looking good. It's good. Now we got to, you know, crank this up and it needs to go up to like a 30 degree angle for it to run downhill. So it, it was a very, very large undertaking, but it, it's funny how the model shop guys were always just, they, they were, they, they had been through so many of these types of builds and these types right. of tricks, which we all grew up on watching those films that, you know, they were like, no, 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 this is how we do it. This is how you do it. Okay. I love it. I mean, I love it, especially because I think of all things that the prequels were groundbreaking and computer generated effects and how they were shot and the digital aspect of everything. A lot of the times the practical elements do go unheralded, right? Whether it's the models that were built for all these movies or like you're saying, these practical sets that had to be kind of created. But I'm so glad that that you were able to experience that because I remember reading there was an article in an insider, I think that was all about how they created that lava and it's just fascinating and you would never have any idea because it was so seamless in the actual finish yeah product. no it was it was really cool and also the um, oh the other thing was that mount etna was erupting at the time so they sent i think a helicopter over there to shoot reference images like high like high def reference images of it yeah. erupting so we were able to pull uh a lot of reference for that in some eruption elements um and then I think there were also little lava tributaries that they painted with black light paint onto the foam landscape. Uh, yeah, it all it all came together. And again, uh, Roger Guyette was the uh, was the VFX supervisor on that sequence. Crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, in between Revenge of the Sith coming out and then the Disney acquisition and the new movies, there are two things that stand out to me, and I hinted at them before. But one are the two incredible covers that you did for the Insider, and I had the Osage Ventures one growing up and that became like a statue and like kind of like an iconic piece of Star Wars art on its own. Um, and then the secondary element was the Visionaries comic series that Rinsler put together and your comic Old Wounds also kind of setting the stage for the future of Star Wars. Um, I'd love to, to talk about those two projects um, and how you got involved and also kind of just how that's kind of evolved over the past decade or so. Well, the the visionaries thing was something we worked on while we were working on Revenge of the Sith because it was it was published, I think, around the time that Revenge of the Sith was released. It was you know when like uh, when when one of the movies comes out, there's a lot of supporting books and materials that come out with it, and so 
Visionaries was something that was released around the same time that uh, Revenge of the Sith uh, premiered. And that was that was Jonathan Rinsler um, came to us one day. He used to come down every now and then just to check in with Ryan and Eric and and uh, and everyone about because he was putting together right. the art of Revenge of the Sith. And he came down one day and he said, hey, would you guys be interested in doing one of those anthology books of short stories? You know, everybody gets 12 pages um, and you get to just write and, you know, pitch, write and uh, illustrate your, you know, your own short Star Wars story. And so uh, it was a lot of fun. But again, it was something we had to do right. after hours. Like we had our day job and then we um, and then we would work on them at night. So I remember uh, Alex Yeager, who did that great entrenched story. Uh, he and I were, you know, in our office, we shared an office at the time and he and I were in our office, you know, every night late, you know, just like once the, once our workday was over, then, you know, uh, working on our, our visionaries thing at night. But yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Cause it was like, again, you know, you, you know, we all grew up playing right. with the star Wars toys. So, you know, you, you're always acting out little, little things on, you know, using right. your action figures. So that was a good time. And then uh, the covers, the Asajj Ventress, that was, um, and Dooku, that was a series of uh, four collector's covers that I think, uh, again, uh, Jonathan Rinsler uh, came to me with, and he said, they want to do four Sith, at the time, I think all the Sith Lords we knew of were uh, Darth Maul, Dooku, Ventress, and mm -hmm. uh, Vader. So he said, you know, they're going to do four collector's covers. Would you be interested? And I was, I think I was on Pirates 2 at the time. So uh, I was like, I can do two. And then I I uh, got Christian Alsman uh, involved and he took two of them too. So um, I, did, I did Vader and I did Dooku and Ventress. And the Dooku and Ventress was very much, it was inspired by the Gustav Klimt painting, The Kiss. And I always liked Gustav Klimt's, he would do like a mosaic and then sort of embed like figurative, entwined figurative people in between, you know, in in between the mosaic kind of motifs. So, um, so yeah, that was just, uh, uh, that was just playing with the whole Gustav Klimt idea. That's so great. No, <laughs> incredible. And incredible stuff that still is just like, like, of course, the old wounds, the introduction of Darth Maul, surviving with the robotic legs that is now just kind of carried on and carried on and carried on and it just felt so star wars so it was nice because when uh sideshow did that i actually have it right here uh, when i sideshow did that piece uh jonathan rinsler hooked me up with one <laughs> like one day i came back to my desk and there was this giant box on my desk i was like ah. right. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy that's awesome uh i mean so now moving to the new movies your work has again, just kind of gone through it all. And the first one that really, I mean, chronologically, of course, but Rogue One, uh, some of the early designs for K2SO, I know that you helped out with, but I'd be curious about working with Gareth Edwards and kind of that whole process of building a Star Wars movie that it wasn't following up anything. It was just kind of a standalone movie. Yeah, that was that was a really, really fun project um, just because I, I was, I'm a huge fan and I was a huge fan of everyone involved in that project. The story idea came from John Knoll. And I had worked with John Knoll. By that point, I had worked with John Knoll on, I think, about four or five films. Three Pirates films, Revenge of the Sith, and then uh, Rango. Mm -hmm. So I had worked with him a lot. And he, John Knoll, you know, 
came to me uh, one time and just said, Hey, you know, they had already, they had already done a little bit of work on it. And he, he said, Hey, you know, I'd, I'd be interested, you know, I'm interested in how do you help out a little bit on this Rogue One thing. But I think it was, it was called something else at the time. And I didn't know anything about it. So he just gave, he just, uh, and then uh, later on, I, I, I had been working with um, Doug Chang a little bit on really early visual development stuff uh, for uh, Solo. And uh, so then, um, then Rogue One got going and uh, I started working with Doug on Rogue One. And I mean, who isn't a fan of Doug? <laughs> you know, uh, yes. so it was, it was really, uh, it, it was really cool kind of, and then Gareth Edwards, I was a huge fan of um, his movie Monsters. I love that movie. <laughs> and so it was kind of like, okay, you know, it's, 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 this is sort of like everyone, everyone involved was just so uh, just, I was a huge fan of everyone involved. So, uh, so that was, that was a lot of fun. And, um, and I think it was one of those things where when John Knoll first explained the, idea in just you know in just casual conversation i was like oh yeah of course like that is a line <laughs> like i was like oh yeah of course why wouldn't you do that that is a line in the original movie about you know the plans and stuff like that like that's a perfect idea so yeah so i got to i got to work with um i got to work with doug and we would have uh weekly meetings with uh, gareth edwards who was um on location or on you know he was up at lucas film with us and uh and uh i worked for about maybe four months five months on on k2so and and Mm -hmm. a lot of other things and uh yeah that was i was a huge fan of how that turned out (laughs) i think it turned out so well just as the final products i think like you're describing it came internally and it was just a bunch of people that really kind of got it and we're just so excited to kind of put this to screen and i people listening to the show know how much I love John Knoll. So yeah. any, any John Knoll talk is, is good with me. It was, it was funny. Uh, the, when I worked on the first pirates film and I, uh, David Nakabayashi was a creative director said, okay, so we're going to have you, we're going to give you a shot at art director on, on pirates of the Caribbean. I was like, Oh, I was hoping for like, maybe working for John Knoll was extremely daunting. And I was hoping, right. I was hoping not have to get thrown in the pool like that. <laughs> right (laughs) oh man and so it was funny because i was working on all these pirates concepts and it was always funny when we come by and review a lot of them because i was like well he invented the program that i'm working on (laughs) so i was like what can i show you that you haven't seen (laughs) right no i love it i I mean because i mean this is a story that listeners know but i I like telling it because it is embarrassing in it but uh i i flew out to la from Texas for that Academy panel last Uh year um, that that they all were. And he, John Noel was there. And so I was able to meet him briefly afterwards and just kind of shake his hand, like kind of freak out a little bit. Cause I really don't freak out except (laughs) it was like John Noel and Ben Burt were there. And I was like, okay, those are the two people I'm allowed to to freak out a little bit. But I told, I told John Noel, which was a mistake, but not a mistake, but I told him, I was like, I have a goatee because you had a goatee in the, episode one documentary and he was like okay cool and then just kind of was like let me get out of the situation so uh, really cool uh and then you know it's funny i i i did something like that uh i don't know if you've ever had a chance to see uh doug chang's uh robota book yeah. that he did yeah 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 I I, somewhere actually i uh i went on a trip to uh france one time with my wife i think it was right when we got engaged we went and took a trip to france 
And I was so excited to get his Robota book, but I was, I'm afraid of flying. And so she bought the book for me, knowing I really wanted to, I was really excited about it. She said, but you can't look at it until you get on the plane. Uh-huh. Me, Cause she knew like I was afraid to, cl- and I might right. bail on the plane flight if I, if she didn't have like this carrot dangling from so it's funny. I, I remember I told Doug, uh, I told Doug that one time and he was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> like, I, was like, yeah, I really wanted to see your robotic book. Right. But I, so I had to get on a plane flight to, you know, that's great. So. No, I, I, Doug Chang, another just incredible, like inspiration. I have, I, uh, I wrote him a letter when I was eight probably. And he uh-huh. sent, he sent back like a little sketch of a little, oh. like, so I, it's still, it's still like the best. <laughs> that's right? awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so enough enough gushing about John Nolan, Doug Chang, and now gushing on Aaron McBride's work on, let's talk about Last Jedi, especially with not only Fadiers and Vault text, but I, just talking about working with Ryan Johnson and that whole process of bringing this to life, because I think Last Jedi has a lot of your fingerprints on it, at least with creature design and, and kind of how that movie was, was shaping around. Yeah, I, I worked on uh, Last Jedi right after Rogue One. And I worked on it with James Klein. He and I were just in this kind of small little office. We, I, I am a huge Ryan Johnson fan. Like I, I've watched, I've watched Brick yeah. like almost as many times as I've watched Alien. Mm-hmm. I love Brick and I love uh, Looper mm-hmm. and I love Brothers Bloom. Right. So it was, that was really cool. And uh, Ryan Johnson was extremely fun to work with. He has a very keen understanding of kind of the economy of storytelling where, you know, he gets, it's very rewarding to work for someone who's like, no, this, this serves the story. This serves the story moving forward kind of thing. Right. Um, so you can do, a, you know, a lot of explorations, but he doesn't, once something's in the realm of what he's interested in, um, he doesn't deviate too much from that. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Phil Shostak mentioned it one time where he said, you know, there's not a lot of blue sky exploration because his script is pr- was pretty much there by the time we started uh, pre-production on it. So yeah, I worked on the caretakers mm. a bit. And then I worked on uh, some, the Voltex with Justin Sweet. Uh, Justin Sweet kind of did the first pass of the Voltex. And then I kind of worked on them mm-hmm. for maybe, I actually only worked on them for about a week or two. Mm. And and I worked mostly on those horses, the Fathiers. Mm-hmm. And then Oh, I worked a bit on the casino patrons. Right. And that was that was actually a lot of fun because uh, Ryan Johnson had mentioned something like, what does Monte Carlo look like in Star Wars? Right. And what do what is what are the Oscars? Like when we were talking about costumes and stuff for right. the for the aliens, he's like, What's black tie in Star Wars? What's what are the Oscars? What would an Oscar uh, red carpet look like in right. Star Wars? Like so it was uh, and I think what was kind of fun about that was the only real affluent, I mean, in the original trilogy, the only real affluent place that you see is Cloud City, or that feels kind of affluent. Um, so this was, there was a painting that Ryan Johnson had given me as reference, which was like Monte Carlo. And it was all, it was like, or it was like four colors. It was like the warm orange of like wood with natural lighting. And then it was black and white of people's, what they were wearing. Everyone was wearing black and white. And then there's uh, little elements of green from the gaming tables. And I, I 
I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like it's limited to just basically a four color palette. Um, and then the only little accents of color would be any weird alien kind of faces or headdresses and stuff like that. But it's pretty much just, it's pretty much just as four colors. And uh, so, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. Cause I, I was interested when I read it in the script, I was really interested. I was like, oh yeah, what does, what does like an affluent Monte Carlo place look like? <laughs> and then he also, uh, Ryan Johnson also had like a, an interesting thing that I hadn't thought of when we were working on Cantobite was some of the initial explorations of Cantobite were these epic sprawling casinos. Mm-hmm. And Ryan said something interesting. He's like, you know, if it's this epic giant place, then it doesn't feel like the one percenters are there. Mm-hmm. It would feel like it, you know, anybody, like tons of people are there. And this needs to feel like only a select few. You only really need to house a select few in this place. So it's actually like a smaller you know, a smaller little enclave. So it's kind of neat. That is super neat. I, I, yes. You, 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 by starting this answer with Brothers Bloom and Brick and Looper, you had me on board yeah. immediately because, I mean, incredible stuff. And then if we move to, to Solo very briefly, I know that you worked on The Mom Monster, which I think is called Suma from Minioth or something. Um, yeah. And then I don't, I think, I think Pablo Hidalgo is in charge of like making up a lot of those names. Uh-huh. And so a lot of times when you're working on something, it just has a random like, right. you know, jellyfish monster da, da, da. and then it's and then you're, you're kind of you're working i was like oh, i wonder what they're going to call this thing <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. well because when i when i watch a star wars movie for the first time i have to watch it twice because the first time i'm just overwhelmed and i'm just like like i remember rogue one had those planet names in the corner at the beginning yeah, yeah. and it was just like stressful for me because i'm like well i have to like know all these names now like you know because i have you know you know so much of all the old ones because you've just been with them for so long and then you're throwing a hundred new names that pablo has made up and you're like oh no well, like i have to <laughs> I have to learn these now. Okay, that's fine. Uh, uh, but anyway, Mom Monster had was that a little late in the process too of kind of making that a, a final element of the run? I'd be curious about how that design process happened. Yeah, so I worked on I worked on Solo a lot in visual development and then in uh, pre production. Uh, and James Klein was the, the design supervisor on that. So I worked I worked a lot with him. And then it kind of I think it was a later edition. I can't remember if it was towards the end of principal photography or during post-production where it was an idea of like a jellyfish floating around in the maelstrom that, uh, that James had had and he, or he threw it out during a meeting, I think. So from there, they were like, yeah, okay, let's give it, let's, let's kind of flesh this out a bit. So then I started doing some concepts for it and it kind of turned into more of like a Kraken squid type of thing Mm -hmm. with these kind of electrical um i think the electrical thing was very much the jellyfish idea where there was like arcs of electricity going between going between the tentacles and then it was a i think i did about six or eight different versions of how the head worked you know some of them were a little bit more hammerhead shark like a t and things like that and then i think we showed it to ron howard and he went with the one that's a little bit more of like a mushroom uh, with sort of those, the little tryptophobia eyes. Um, right. I'm a big fan of tryptophobia. And so I, uh, so I try and work it into anything. <laughs> it, bothers, <laughs> it bothers the hell out of me. Like I, yeah. I think on, on Pirates of the, on Dead Man's Chest, uh, Stellan Skarsgård's uh, character, ha- we added some stuff to some barnacles on his face where they kind of dilate. And, and I remember in dailies, it would always bother me. And so, uh, 
so I always try and work that kind of tryptophobia stuff in the song. And then I think the it was a sea turtle for um, mm. for the mouth. Um, and then Chris Costa, who's a brilliant, brilliant modeler, and ILM uh, did the model for it. No, and it turned out incredible. And I love, I think I read somewhere that the skull at the end when it's getting ripped off is kind of like an Indiana Jones homage yeah. as well, which I love. Yeah. So yeah, as much as that as possible, just just throw it <laughs> on me. That's great. I love it. The The other things that really stand out to me, just very briefly, because I don't want to take too much more of your time, but your work most recently with ILM XLab and Beta Immortal, I think is a very interesting kind of evolution of your process. And I'd be curious if there's a difference when you're doing that for a video game rather than for, for a film. It's interesting because a lot of that was, like you said, it was a learning process for me because there are some things that are different. So one of the one of the first things I had to learn was whenever you're doing concepts for something, you're working, okay, what's the what's the aspect ratio? What's the camera? What's the composition? And you are the camera in VR. So I had to really I, I had to understand that. What was like, you know, okay, that's that's cool, but how is this interesting as an experience? And we had a lot of great game designers coming over from games. Uh, we had this game designer, Colin uh, Mackey, and I learned from him, the things that look cool are not always fun, to, uh, a fun thing to do. And then the things, it, it was this interesting learning process of, um, he, he told me one time about, um, okay, so we're going to have this part where, you know, we need to design some pipes that you have to cut through with your, with your lightsaber. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so we did a concept and then we gave it to them. Like, okay, great. And then they brought us up there to do that, to play through that section of it where you're trying to get through a, a crack in the wall of Vader's castle and you have to cut through these pipes. It was the funnest thing I've ever done. Like I <laughs> wanted I wanted a game of just cutting pipes with a lightsaber after right. that. <laughs> so it was, to your point, one of the things I learned was there are things that are fun to do a lot of times the things that are visually amazing, you have to, you also have to take into account what's just going to be fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole idea of wish fulfillment of, you know, if you had a lightsaber in your hand, if you were flying a ship, what's the thing you would want to do? And so I, I think I learned a lot from the people who the game designer folks who came from games to help out with that is I understood what's an actual fun thing to do. Yeah. Uh, Cause I was just worried. I was just concerned about the visuals. Right. So yeah, that's so interesting. I, we could spend hours talking about your incredible book covers. I mean, like you just did uh, the battlefronts. I think you did the Dooku lost audiobook as well. Yeah. Um, but I spent probably 30 minutes on your art station and I, I'll put a link in the show notes. Cause it's just like every single picture. Like, Oh, that's cool. That's, that's, uh, and there are two things that stood out to me. One, um, was you did like a James Bond fan art of like Daniel Craig hunting oh, Sean yeah. Connery. And I was like, that's I'm, cool. I'm a, I'm a huge James Bond dork. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. And I was like, I was like, yep, I'll watch that one. Yes, sure. <laughs> Make that one happen. Uh, but I'd love to talk a little bit uh, to close out about uh, your graphic novel and any other upcoming projects you might have in the works um, and anything else you might want to plug or talk about. Uh, yeah, I, I've been working on a personal graphic novel for um, for a long time called Torade. And uh, it is, you know, a lot of times artists and writers will take, try and fuse things that they grew up with that are that are very special to them. Um, and so I grew up with, a, you know, a lot of different influences when I was younger, I loved, 
I loved John Hughes movies and I loved Miami Vice and I loved Aliens. Mm -hmm. And so I, Torade is something that I, you do these, you write these stories uh, to kind of put together all the things that you love, um, kind of fuse them all together. And, you know, in much the way that, you know, George fused Flash Gordon and Samurai, you know, Akira Kurosawa films. A lot of times I think, you know, we grow up and we have a lot of different sources of inspiration. You know, I, I grew up in the eighties. So I, you know, I love John Hughes movies and aliens and, yeah. and Mad Max. You know? <laughs> right. So Torade is, is basically me, uh, you know, exercising all my, all my eighties demons. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Can't wait. Can't wait to see it. That's awesome. Well, uh, well, Mr. McBride, thank you for coming on. Thanks for uh, making this all happen. And yeah, keep keep up the incredible work and uh, please stay in touch. I really appreciate it. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. I'm a big fan of, uh, of all your, your podcasts. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right. We'll talk soon. Stay safe. Uh, okay. Take care. Thank you again to Mr. McBride for his time, as well as those kind words about the show. I've been such a big fan of his art for such a long time, so this was a real honor. If you could go right now to the app where you're listening to this podcast and leave a five-star rating or a review or both, uh, it is so, so appreciated. Thank you all for your support, especially this last weekend with that merch drop on Super Yaki. I was blown away by the response. Next Wednesday is my interview with Tan Wee herself, Rena Owen. So... Stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the force be with you.